Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Gabadek and Sean Karnikian. That's me. Good afternoon, Sean. Good morning. Whatever time of day it is, you may be listening. It's morning. I finally found out these aren't live. They're not? Nope. Wow. People okay, can, so we can curse? They can download them. We can curse? We're not regulated by the no, FCC. they can stream it. They can stream it. They don't have to download it anymore. Just like Netflix. Netflix. Netflix? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> one of the things we do is we review recent cases that come down from the California Supreme Court, California Court of Appeal, Ninth Circuit, sometimes the United States Supreme Court. We're doing this uh, in, I think, right around day 100 of the pandemic. It, it kind of is. Yeah, that's not a joke. Yeah. And we are doing today some interesting cases that are really interesting and involve personal injury or at least personal injury practice, civil procedure, things yeah, like that. Yeah, a little that. bit of civil procedure. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting set of cases. But before we get into them, uh, you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. You can you know, rate us and subscribe to us on Spotify. And Do they iTunes pay a subscription or, fee? Nope, nope. It just automatically downloads it to their phone so they can listen. But they don't, they don't pay a fee. To, no, who pays our is who free. pays our salary? This is, Brian Kabatek does. Oh yeah, Brian. <laughs> I think you know that. I can assure you. Yeah, that. yeah. Okay, so we have four cases today. One of them has to do with the standard on summary judgment and getting a continuance when there's discovery outstanding. So that's a practical case. Then we're going to talk about joint and severable liability and the principles behind that. Um, then we're going to talk about nine nine eights and some very. It's an important primer on nine nine eights. So if you're ever dealing in that, you should really check out the case that we talk about here. And lastly. Just this is an interesting case, and it has to do with the recovery of emotional emotional distress damages in a breach of contract case. So our first case today is going to be a case called Insulaco versus Hope Lutheran Church of West Contra Costa County, which you might guess took place in Contra Costa Superior Court. It did in the Bay Area. And uh, the the facts of this case are not particularly relevant to the discussion we're going to have here today about the standard on the summary judgment, but it, it involved some kind of slope failure, which caused the plaintiff's home, I guess, to be unlivable and collapse into a creek bed below. Yeah. During a during heavy rains, during a mudslide, I guess the plaintiff and another cross complainant um, lived uphill from a church that had a graded and paved parking lot that's impervious and that caused some sort of erosion, saturation of the land, and that caused toe failure, I think it's called. Right. And the slope failed and their land became church, unlivable. Church claims it had nothing to do with them. It just had to do with the heavy rainfalls that year. And so they weren't liable. They weren't responsible. And as defendants often are want to do, they filed a, a motion for summary judgment to get out of the case. And so what apparently happened is that at some point before their opposition was due, the plaintiff's lawyers went into court with a detailed motion asking for an extension of time so they could conduct more discovery. Right. The defendant had two experts that it had retained and in support of its summary judgment motion had filed two declarations by those experts. So the plaintiff said, hey, we, we're going to take these experts depositions and we want to also be able to do a site inspection, uh, inspection of the church because a lot of what the experts rely upon have to do with the condition of the grading and the surface and surface area at the church. And they said, we need this information and, and they're not Apparently allowing the us to do depositions had already been set and so they were prepared to do the depositions. They needed to do some more discovery and the opposition. So, so it's not totally uh, it's not totally unreasonable to request. But, you know, before I read this case, I said, ah, I could see how this can go both ways. You know, why'd they wait so long to get an inspection? That was their argument. They yep. said they waited too long and they've been dilatory. And but e but then even in their opposition, the church came back and said, well, if you give an extension, don't make it more than 30 days because we can get everything done in 30 days, which to me is sort of a concession that. It's reasonable. Yeah, we need a little, maybe a little no bit one's asking for six months. Well, what, court, what does the court do? Court said denied sure, it reasonable? without denied it without comment. 
just oh, denied okay. it without comment. Very thoughtful. So they then go ahead, they oppose it the best they can, they lose, and that becomes the issue on appeal. So let's start there. 437C is the statute that pertains to motions for summary judgment. We all know you have 75 days from the day it's filed, additional five it's done by mail. Uh, for a hearing, can't be any sooner than that. It's statutory. They can't make it any sooner. They can't force you to do it any sooner. Should give you time. However, subsection H still exists. Yeah, it specifically gives you more time. And the court here in this opinion uh, cites to a treatise on this issue and says a continuance, normally a matter within the court's discretion, so not something that's mandatory, is virtually mandatory, and that's in quotations, and it's italicized, I'm assuming because they want to emphasize that, where the non-moving party makes the requisite showing, and it adds, the party need not show that the essential evidence does exist, but only that it may exist. I think that's really important. I think those this is a very important case, because I'm not recommending that anybody be dilatory in their discovery, but we all know that defense lawyers also can be dilatory in their response, so they can try to jam you, they can try to back you up. Uh, right now, as we're recording this, there's one of these situations in our very office where this this situation exists, and this case seems to me to be pretty strong words about courts not um, preventing you from doing discovery. Now, if you come out and you're saying you know you want to do something that's ridiculous, that doesn't have any potential nexus to the motion, I think you're going to have trouble. If you really have been dilatory, you wait until the week before your opposition's due. Yeah, I think you better not do that. I can't predict what the outcome is going to be. But um, if you're able to show a pretty clear record that you need the discovery, that it, as you said, Sean, it may lead to yeah. the discovery of information. And, and how do you show that? You show that by including an attorney declaration that says we need this information because it can it can help us oppose the summary judgment motion. And you don't need an expert declaration that says, well, I'm an expert and I need to review this or right. that. You don't even need that. So there is a bit of a standard. There, there's a threshold you need to meet, but it's not that high. And I think this case is a good primer. I think for it's a great primer. Yeah. The other thing yeah. I'd add about this case is that also the court took time to say, even though we're going ahead and reversing it on the grounds that they should have had more time. Uh, the church's undisputed material facts were not undisputed. They were material, but they weren't undisputed, and they pointed that out. I mean, one of the things I always wonder is when you open up a, um, a, a motion for summary judgment and you've got, you know, 40, 50, 70, 80 undisputed facts, I look at that and I go, how can that ever be granted? Yeah. Because all you need to do is find that a couple of those, one of those yeah. and is over, disputed. And over here, without getting too much into the details of the dispute, there was one where the the fact in and of itself, kind of the, the defendant filing the motion conceded that, well, there is a dispute as to this um, because plaintiff, one of the plaintiffs pointed out a dispute and then the other side said, well, it doesn't matter that, that it's disputed. Um, and the court said, well, you're conceding that it is disputed when you're saying it doesn't matter that it's disputed. So that's one of the reasons denied it. I also liked over here that the trial court, and, and sometimes this is just infuriating, um, at the hearing on the summary judgment motion, the plaintiffs argue, oh, yeah, this is good. but your honor, this is good. there's there's discovery that because the judge Because the judge says you don't have enough evidence. Why don't you have enough evidence here? Right. And the judge says, well, well, you should have made a motion for this if you wanted more evidence. You should have brought I a motion. I did. And, and, and I the did. lawyer, and then he, in court, reads portions of his declaration that they had previously submitted, and then the judge says, this, these are his words, he says, I I have no independent recollection of the ex parte. And then he says, I either granted it or denied it. Which is, that's you know, that's very, pretty good, very right? Very helpful. Yeah, very insightful. Right. I either granted or denied it. And and then he says something like, well, if you want to inspect the church, you could just walk down there any Sunday and go check it out. Meanwhile, they also submitted evidence that the church specifically denied their request to inspect the site. So, you know, and, and I mean, look, you know, it's it, it it's packed full of great facts, but 
I don't think that you know you should get too fact dependent on even this if in there's your own. delay. By the way, I think I think we should keep in mind even if you know you you kind of you're lazy like me. And I, I'm just, delay. Um, yeah. the, the the law specifically says, and this is a quote from one of the cases called Ball B A H L. It says the policy favoring this position on the merits outweighs the compelling policy favoring judicial efficiency. So even if you delayed a little bit, even if it is kind of your fault, if there's legitimate evidence out there, if there may be legitimate evidence out there, you're still entitled to a continuance. And my only point about this is that I don't think you need, I mean, obviously the facts in this case are great for the plaintiff, but you don't need to worry about having all these facts. Just as you say, showing that you getting an attorney declaration, showing that there may be evidence. Too bad we don't have time for any of our other cases since we spent all our time on this case today. It was but, an exciting case. Yeah, but let's no, let's see if we can squeeze in a couple more. Schuller versus Capital Agricultural Property Services. This is a second DCA opinion out of Division Six. Uh, I always like Division Six because their opinions tend to be short, to the point, pithy, funny, interesting. This one I didn't think was like that, int- the, like that short, but it, it's a good. It's a did good it not type entertain issue. you enough? Didn't entertain me a lot. No, I'm sorry, Brian. Didn't entertain um, me. But this also has to do with land erosion or, or land collapse or failure, whatever you want to call Which it. Which is also sort of irrelevant to the discussion. The facts here are sort sure. of more or yeah. less irrelevant. But what happened in this case is that um, there was an erosion, there was a hill collapse, and there was a lawsuit that followed. And what quickly, when they found out in the lawsuit, is that. The U.S. government or employees of the U.S. government may have contributed substantially to this collapse. Because they conducted a survey or they approved it or something. So, so. the case gets removed to federal court because they name federal employees because you can't sue any federal employer, the United States government and state court. It gets removed to federal court. And almost immediately there's a settlement in in, in uh, federal court for $50,000 by the U.S. government. Right? But only with the government. Yeah. With a motion for good faith under 877.6, CCP 877.6. It's approved. It's approved. $50,000. Federal courts, unlike state courts, will issue like a final judgment in these situations, which right. they did. And then the case returned to state court, and then there was a trial. But this time, the the only defendant named in the lawsuit in state court is the you know the neighbor or whatever. the Basically, one of, one of the, the landowners, the people that were sure. responsible for it. Yeah, and there's a trial, and there's a verdict, uh, economic damages of $1.756 million. And, non-economic uh, damages of $50,000. Very important yep. that we have economic and non-economic damages here. And ultimately, there's an attorney fee award to the plaintiff's lawyer. But the trial court then reduces the liability by the amount that had been allocated to the federal employees. Which was 68%. Right. So, and then there was, there was also 2% um, contributory negligence against the plaintiff. So it goes 30% against that tortfeasor, the landowner, 68% against the uh, government employees, and 2% against the plaintiff. And that's because uh, there were boxes listed for allocation for the jury to do for all the parties. Because th- that's the proper thing to do. Right. case law on that. There was nothing wrong with that. But what was wrong was the, was the reduction. And the... Uh, defendant's argument in this case is, well, you have to reduce it for these employees, these federal employees, because even though there was a good faith motion, that's how much their liability is. And the good faith motion was doesn't count. It doesn't mean anything. And, and it was kind of, you know, I scratched my head about the trial court's decision here. But just as a refresher, economic damages are subject to joint and several liability means that you can be liable for one percent, but you're going to be liable for 100 percent 
of the economic damage. Right. No reduction. And but but it's not the same. And this is something that I maybe I knew at some point, but I kind of forgotten. It's not the same for non-economic damages. Non-economic damages are several. But you, right. Long ago, no there was a proposition liability. in California called Proposition 51. Proposition 51 made that the rule. It used to be that both economic and non-economic damages you'd be 100 percent liable for. And back in the day when the business community had a, a, hung, a stronger toehold in California, they were able to get that passed by the electorate. And so non-economic damages are actually allocable according to the percentage. Economic damages are not. Right. And the court, the court of appeal says, no, it was improper for the trial court to reduce the $1.7 million verdict down to uh, $460,000. The only reason I can think that they published this case was because of this unique situation with the U.S. government. So it goes to federal court. There's a judgment. It's not just a, a good faith motion of judgment, which I think is the distinction without a difference. But um, because the federal court granted the good faith motion, so always have a good faith motion, what the good faith motion basically says is that that is the amount of liability, but it doesn't, you know, give the, it gives them an offset. They got a $50,000 offset, right? Right. For the, for the non-economic component of it, but, but, but that's it. And I think what it comes down to is what was agreed to in the other settlement. And the court points out that the uh, plaintiff here didn't agree to not seek full compensation for their loss. They simply agreed not to seek it against the United States government. Right. So Um, it's an incentive to settle your cases early. It's an incentive to make deals. It is not an incentive for a defendant to sit back, wait and see what happens because they could be tagged with the full economic loss. And who knows, maybe this defendant landowner can seek indemnity from the United States government or, or from the employees or whatever. But but that's that's not relevant in terms of. The well, a lot of times those good faith motions will wipe that out. I mean, that's right. the end of the case for them. They want the case to be over. If there's a contractual indemnity, that may be a different situation. But right. they made their decision not to pursue a cross complaint. They made a decision you know, not to not to pursue it. And um, but what I thought was interesting about this case was the trial court awarded 100 percent of the attorney fees, even though they reduced the amount of liability of damages substantially. Right. 100 percent right. of the attorney fees as to or against the landowner. Right. But here the plaintiff said, Strange. well, you know, we think because we're prevail on the appeal, we should get all our attorney fees on appeal. The court of the appellate court agreed. And then um, they also they also brought up the fact that, you know, there should be the court does bring up the fact there should be some small offset here, which works as follows. Fifty thousand dollar offset plus two percent for the um, comparative comparative. Yeah, right. Plus there was a small amount of non-economic damages in this case. Yeah. And that was reduced by the 60 whatever percent it was. Yeah. So. Fairly straightforward. I talked to the appellate lawyer on this case, Jeff Ehrlich, great appellate lawyer. Give him a little plug here, even though he probably doesn't listen to us because I don't know if Jeff knows how to work in computer. That's a joke. Or but, no, he, he doesn't listen to us because he's too smart to listen to oh, us. Oh, is that why? Yeah. So every time we've invited him to be our guest on the show and he's turned us down, it's because he just doesn't like us. Yes, that's why. Anyway, I asked him about this case and he thought he was he was curious as to why they published it as well. And he also said that, you know, he thought that the um, defense lawyers were pretty persuasive and that's how they were able to convince the judge because I was confused when, on how that came, how the, the trial court decision came to be. That's like our second one in a row today with a really wacky trial court ruling um, that results ultimately in a reversal. So let's go on to one that um, I think it's affirmed, right, which is Anthony yep. versus Lee. And uh, this case involves a 998 issue. 
Yeah, it does. So uh, it starts out with an accident with uh, Chad Anthony, the plaintiff, getting injured because someone by, I, I won't try to pronounce the first name, but last name Lee, um, a foreign national um, who was visiting the United States, had rented a car from Avis and gets into an accident. Fortunately I, for fortunately for Mr. Anthony, checked the box to buy a million-dollar liability policy. Yeah, which is good which news. Which doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. And interesting procedural factor that I didn't know, and Brian pointed out to me, is that if you get into an accident with a someone in a rental car, you do not need to, and they're for national, you do not need to serve the driver with a lawsuit. The um, the rental car company is obligated to take service. So you don't have to go through the Hague Convention and go to, right. you know, halfway across the world and wait two years. Which used to result in huge injustice. And I think yeah. we, when, when Consumer Attorneys of California sponsored this bill a few years ago, we called it the Yak Bill because one of our members had um, actually had to serve somebody in like uh, uh, Kathmandu or something like that. And they that. had to get on a yak to go serve them. Well, that, that part's probably just an exaggeration. But no, really, that really illustrates it. All the trouble. We've covered cases about like the technicalities and the difficulty of foreign service under the Hague right. Convention. And it's all games playing, too, by these rental car companies because they know that they have the million-dollar policy. They're on the hook for the million-dollar policy. They probably underwrite most of it themselves, and they just don't want to pay it. So, but what happened here? So what happened here is Anthony, the plaintiff, serves a 998 for $500,000, except before serving the 998, um, they dismiss the uh, they, they dismiss Avis. They, they had named the company, but, you know, the company at the end of the day is not liable. They just insured uh, issued the insurance policy. So the only real defendant here is Mr. Lee. And so they dismissed Avis from the lawsuit. Uh, but then they serve a 998 that specifically says that this is being sent to Lee and the uh, and, and Avis. Yeah. Avis, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they say this is an offer to settle with Lee and Avis, and and we'll half a million buck nine nine eight. They go to trial, they get a uh, like a six hundred fifty thousand dollar verdict. So so they beat it, right? Right. They're in the clear. Everything's good. Nope. They'll recover their nope. costs. And... But this is a good cautionary tale because nine nine eights are not as easy as people think they are. And in this case, the first thing you have to consider is that the offer was to both of them. And what the Court of Appeal basically said is that an offer is not valid if it's conditioned upon acceptance by all the defendants. And that they said that his 998 offer was invalid as a matter of law because it was conditioned on acceptance by both the defendants. So, you know, no disrespect to the people involved in this case, but they obviously made a mistake. Right? So you can't have it conditioned on acceptance by multiple parties, first of all. And you can't make the offer to a dismissed party. Why? Because they're no longer have standing to be in the case. That's that's they're not an important. Dismissed. They don't you have standing to accept they're, they're it, not, deny it. Yeah. You're not sending it to anybody. They're, they yeah. don't exist in the case itself. And of course, this also going back to the very last case we talked about about joint and several liability. Why this is not even joint and several liability? It's it's there's no liability on the the rental car agency. Yeah, why do you name them in the nine? Why would you know. name them in the nine nine anyways? But if it was vicarious liability, why would you need to name them? You name one of them and say, yeah. you know, here's the nine nine. So. It's it's not you know it's not good, yeah. um, but 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 the case is actually really good for clarifying the requirements, the specific requirements of a nine nine eight, and and it it might be because I'm not very bright, but I've always had struggled understanding the technicalities of it. So this is a great case. In fact, the section that that explains all this is called a general. The general guidelines regarding section nine nine eight offers. So check. Was that it out. difficult for you to read without pop ups? Um, I need pictures. So there's other I, I, parts there's no about pictures. this. There's no pictures. So there's other parts about this case that I thought were really, really important, though, that's on a collateral issue, which is yeah. in this case, uh, after the plaintiff won, he also made a request for the court reporter fees and for mediation fees. And I'm not sure I agree with the court on this, but let me tell you first what the court's finding was. They said, because you agreed to split the fees for a court reporter 
and the mediator that as a matter of law, unless you reserve the right to recover that later as a cost in the case, you can't recover it. So let me say that again. I think that's very important. If you are sharing court reporter fees, and those of you that go to trial and do this, we do it all the time. We say, let's share this, let's share that. If you're sharing those fees, you don't get to recover them unless there's an affirmative statement that would be a cost item at the end of the case. Yeah, that's that's a cautionary I, tale. It is a very big, and I just disagree I mean, I disagree with that. too, but but it's the law, especially. Well, at least this. in this, yeah, at least in yeah. this decision, it is. I, I don't know if that's the right because normally prevailing party, uh, you get to cover to recover the cost of litigation, and that includes court reporter fee, mediation fees. But here they say, hey, look, you know, when the la- when you have an agreement. If the language is unambiguous, we're not going to rewrite the agreement for you. And and I don't disagree as much as Brian does, but I think we both agree that it's a cautionary tale. So. Well, you got it. So, yeah, the real cautionary tale to take away from this now is that whenever you're doing that in a case you're going to trial, make sure that it's very clear on the record that you're agreeing that the fees and costs are are shared only for the purpose of paying, but not at the right end now. Of the case. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, our last case today is really sort of just a, a just fun, interesting case. It's called Robinson versus Sadat. Uh, Not so much fun for Mrs. Robinson, Robertson. Mrs. Robertson, yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is a case on the second DCA. um, And the facts of the case are obviously very sad here. And we don't mean to make light of that. But um, they were married young. uh, And he had a medical condition, underlying medical condition. Some genetic condition. Yeah, yeah. And that landed him in a coma at some point. And then Mrs. Robertson at some point said, hey, look, well, they found out she, he's probably going to die. It's terminal and said, I want to harvest, for lack of a better term, his sperm so I can in the future. This maybe- is such a law school case, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it yeah, really it totally is. is. You couldn't so make this before up. he dies, they extract the sperm. And that wasn't an easy decision uh, either because she had to go to the UCLA Medical Center Risk Management Office and explain to them that show them letters and they cards got ethics and stuff. involved. They, they got their they, ethics. She was involved. able to establish. Yeah. they wanted to have children, that it was very clear that they had planned to have children, that they wanted to have children. So they said, fine, they extracted the sperm. And, and she had it. So then she she was impregnated and she had children. Nope, nope, the, nope, not that simple. Well, she but, had it stored with a uh, facility. Then so think, in the future, she can be impregnated and have children. That was the plan. Yeah, that so was is that what's going to happen? Nope, nope. Why not? Spoiler alert, somebody screwed something up. So she had six vials stored with this company that's ultimately you know, taken over by uh, someone named Paymon Sadat, a doctor. And this, when she reaches out to this company and says, okay, I'm ready to start fertility treatment. Can I have my vials of sperm, please? And they were able to give them to her? Nope. They, they said, no, it looks like we're having trouble finding it. It probably got lost in a fire we had a fire. few years ago. All but one of them got lost in a fire. And she gets very upset about that. And then they even try to offer her their own services for doing fertility. And she says, no, shut up. Just give me the last remaining vial. And, and then they, they say, were able to give it to her? Uh, nope. They say, eh, it looks like we lost all of them. That was that was just somebody else. So vial. what the case really was about was the emotional distress that flowed from not having the yeah. sperm, right? And so yeah. what the court analyzed was they said, well, do you even have standing for the underlying case? If they had had the sperm, could you have used it? Could you have used it? And the court came to the conclusion that no, she couldn't. And they analyzed really two important California cases on this point. Uh, one is a case called HECT, H-E-C-H-T, um, which involved a very clear Pre, uh, pre-death statement that he wanted his girlfriend to have um, the sperm and have children with the sperm. And when that was challenged by the children, the Court of Appeals said, no, as long as there is clear testamentary intent yeah. to use the sperm to have children after death, that's the important and, point. And the letter specifically said that. He said, I, I want her to have a child by me after my death. So 
that was clear. So that's the example of the expressed intent. And if that was the situation here, if Miss uh, Mrs. Robertson had a letter from her husband saying, I want her to have my children after my death, there would be a better argument here for her having a cause of action for the emotional distress. But and that's not a, the case. Right. That's there's the a second case. case called Kievernagel. You like uh-huh. how I pronounce that? That's pretty good. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Pretty good, pretty it's pretty good, good yeah. And in Kievernagel, I think the facts were exactly the opposite, right? Right. No expressed intent, and the court ultimately ruled that, no, you can't do with, do with it what you please. Interestingly, though, and here we really go into law school for a moment, the law holds that a child conceived and born following the death of a decedent is deemed to have been born within the decedent's lifetime. And there has to be clear and convincing evidence that the decedent specified in writing that uh, his sperm was to be used for exactly that purpose. And so here they looked and they said there's no clear intent. It may have been an intent that you were going to have children. But once he died, there has to be testamentary intent that he was that he wanted you to have children after he died. Right. So the other important part of this case, though, was the discussion in the case about uh, the plaintiff being able to recover emotional distress. Yeah, because it wasn't just a negligence cause of action. It was negligence, professional negligence, but also breach of contract. So um, the court said, fine, maybe your breach of contract action can stand. And the plaintiff wanted to argue that, well, she could get emotional distress under the breach of contract. And the court said no. And they said the reason they said no here was that the first reason they said no is that you never had the right to it in the first place. But then the court went on to remind us that emotional stress damages for breach of contract are very narrow. For example, the bad faith breach of a contract we know in insurance, in the insurance world, uh, can lead to emotional distresses for an individual. But then they gave a couple other examples there. There's one case called Windler, where this is a case where... um, the plaintiff had made known to a defendant that that rings that they were holding in a bail or bailee situation were important to the family. It was important family heirlooms. And in that case, because that intent had been expressed, they said, well, you can recover emotional stress. And then the other one, it was the um, the destruction of remains of a decedent, a family member, which we all know is a special exception to the, the rule for emotional distress. Yeah, and this for, doesn't fall into either, as tragic as the story might be, it doesn't fall into either of those buckets. So that's all we got for you today. Thanks very much for listening. I think they were interesting cases. Thank you, Sean. We think they're interesting. We hope you think you're interesting. We think interesting. we're interesting. Right, and that's probably Never wrong. wrong. Yeah. We're never wrong about no, that. No, I was going to say, we're probably wrong about that. Uh, But thanks for tuning in. You can check us out online at kbklawyers.com. We like hearing your feedback, your complaints, your your questions, whatever it is. Uh, So reach out to us. And thanks for tuning in.